stay tuned for the Ecology Hour with Patrick Henschel, joining us via Zoom. Good evening, everybody. You're listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX. The show tonight is Running on Empty, and I'm your host, Patrick Henschel. I've got a great show planned for tonight. I'm really excited to be welcoming Miss Erica Voman uh, to the conversation. Erica and I met, gosh, a little over a year ago, probably for the first time. I was looking to get off of drinking so much coffee and was exploring coffee alternatives out there in the world and stumbled across this fascinating seed uh, that actually falls to the forest floor in Central and South America. It's called the Maya nut um, tree. The seed comes from the Maya nut tree. And I started exploring uh, a couple of uh, different sources for that and ultimately found Erica and the work that she was doing at what's called the Mayanut Institute. So Erica, um, a big focus for her is, is, is developing global awareness around Mayanut. And that to me was so important, such a great story that I wanted to bring to the show because of course our main focus is climate change, um, ecological conservation, and deforestation is a huge threat um, to our environment, right? We know that deforestation uh, basically is one of the main drivers of climate change, monocropping, uh, monocropping to grow crops for animal livestock, all of this. So there was sort of an instant connection there. And then recently I got talking to Erica and I thought, Erica, it'd be really great if you could come on the show and talk to our listeners um, about Mayanut, about your background with Mayanut, why you got started with the Mayanut Institute, how you got started. Um, and so... That's it. I'm excited to welcome her to the show. Erica, are you here with us? Yep. Here I am. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. So Erica, I would love if you could just give us a little bit of an intro um, on yourself and how you came to get involved with Mayanot. How did you discover it and what's the story been since then? Um. I learned about the Maya nut when I was working in Guatemala at an animal rescue organization. Uh, my job, I was pretty young then, my job was to go out in the forest and gather food for the animals in this rescue place. And uh, it turned out that the main food we would go and gather every day was the Maya, parts of the Maya tree, leaves, buds, branches, seeds. Um, and the whole fruits. And uh, it was fascinating to me how important this tree was to all the wildlife in the forest. We were working in the, in the Mayan Biosphere Reserve in northern Guatemala. And I was working with an indigenous guy. He was my co-worker. And he told me that, you know, yeah, my ancestors used to eat it too. It used to be really important for people. But people don't really eat it anymore. And at that same time, somebody from another organization, a gal named Mercedes, made us some soup out of it. Hmm. It was really delicious. The fresh seed is, 
is something that's not that easy to bring to the U.S. because it doesn't travel well, but it's really delicious. It's kind of like a, that tastes like a mashed potato. It's yummy and it's green. Yeah. So it's kind of cool. It's like alien food. Anyway, so I tried that and I was really impressed and the trees were everywhere and it was really important for wildlife. And I decided to find out whatever I could about it because it seemed so obvious to me that it was an alternative food source for people who were burning the forest slash and burning the forest to grow corn and also slashing and burning forest to grow pasture to raise meat and milk. So this is kind of a long story, but I'll try to make it short. I faxed back in the day. There was no Googling or emailing or texting or anything. I sent a fax to the Instituto de Ecología in uh, Veracruz, Mexico, because I had found some research that they were doing via, I was using the microfiche at the library. Do you remember that? You're probably too young for that. You had to look at a goggle thing, and you could look up really old articles. And they had done a bunch of research on the Maya because in that part of Veracruz, there were big forests and this research institute and some scientists at Riverside, University of California at Riverside, were trying to bring the Maya to the market because they also, they were the first people to see its potential. Got it. Completely changing the trajectory of of agriculture and the way we feed ourselves. It would have, they were not successful, unfortunately. They were kind of going head to head with big oil interests in Veracruz. So their their research lab was shut down by the government. Hmm. Anyway, I found they sent me a fax (laughs) with the nutritional analysis of the Maya seed. At which right. point I was like, oh, my God, this is the million-dollar idea. And uh, I went back to grad school at UC Davis to study agronomy to better understand how I could bring this seed to the market. Wow, I didn't know that your studies actually came after you discovered, in that area, had I, it came after you discovered Mayanat. Yeah, it was kind of taking a gap year, I guess, in my own way. But it wasn't called Maya Nut at that point, right? It was called, were they just calling it Ramon Seed at that point? You kind of coined the term Maya Nut. They called it Ramon Seed, and Ramon means to browse. Hmm. Ramoniac is the word that they use in certain, the name they use in certain parts of the world. So in Cuba, um, the Yucatan of Mexico, parts of Guatemala. They call it Ramon, but it's it's a native food and it's a native tree in thousands of indigenous communities, and every community has a different name for it. So I wanted to give it a common name. Yeah. Which in science, there's a Latin name and there's a common name, and I wanted to give it a universal common name that was not biased toward any one region because I really wasn't sure where we were going with it. Right. The Maya definitely uh, highlights the Mayan people because that's where I was working when I learned about it. But the reality is, is that it, it spans central and South America. Can you speak a little bit about like the, the coverage of this tree and the role it plays um, in those local 
ecosystems because it's it's pretty expansive, right? Yeah, um, like the the ecological term for that is that it's a cosmopolitan species. Okay, <laughs> which is kind of classy. Yeah, it's very yeah. It has a really wide range. It has a enormous range. It's found in northern Mexico, as far north in, as parts of Sonora, and all the way down to Bolivia and northern Brazil, and then throughout the Antilles, and it's which are the islands and the what ocean is that? The Atlantic Ocean or sure, the yeah. Caribbean? Sorry, Caribbean. Mm-hmm. And it's extinct in a lot of places, so it's been interesting to try to understand what its original distribution was because it's very easy to permanently exterminate the Maya tree from a region. Haiti is a great example. So we work, I found Maya in Cuba and I found it in Jamaica, but I could never find it in the, on the island of Hispaniola, which is Haiti in the Dominican Republic. Um, and that's quite possibly because of one of two stories. One is that wild pigs were introduced to the island, mm. and um, those the Maya seed is a really important food. It's really a favored food for cows, donkey, deer, tapir, and pigs, and, and rabbits, and lizards even eat it. So pigs would browse the seedlings. And because the seed is recalcitrant, the seed doesn't have any dormancy. I hope I'm not losing the audience with this. No, you've got it. I mean, I, so you're saying that the seed basically, it, 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 it doesn't, it can't just sit there for indefinite periods of time. It, it, is that what that means? Exactly. Yeah. So a lot of trees, they could drop all their seeds and some of them would germinate and then yep. would come by and eat them but there would still be a soil seed bank. Right. It would be hanging out there. And when the pigs were gone, because eventually the people of the Island of Hispaniola worked really hard to exterminate the pigs. Ah, but it might've been too late. So that might be one way that the tree went extinct. But another story that's a lot more um, sinister. Sure. um, From a social, social perspective was, um, right. I read a story, and of course I can't find it now because I've looked, but I read a story about um, a plantation owner in Venezuela. Mm. The Venezuelan species of the Maya, is a, the, the species is Brosimum, the genus is Brosimum, mm-hmm. and the species that we use is Alicastrum. But there's another species, Brosimum util, which is... Um, the cow, also known as the cow tree, and it produces a latex that's nutritionally identical to milk. Hmm. Similar, not identical, but it's nutritionally okay. very similar to milk. Okay. So the plantation owners in this part of Venezuela were would control their slaves, their plantation slaves, by withholding food. And the slaves would revolt, and the plantation owners would withhold the food, and the slaves would go into the forest and they would they would drink the latex of this brosimo mutile and Whoa. come back when the protests were over and the plantation owners decided to give in to their demands. And the slaves were fatter than they were before. <laughs> 
And that really pissed them off, and they exterminated the tree in the area. Aye. So one of their, you know, their goal was to get rid of this free food source for slaves. So I don't know if that might have happened in Haiti. That's, I, I don't know. But regardless, it's really strange to me that it, it reminds me of the story of the buffalo in in uh, North America and how they were intentionally extinguished, basically yeah. to make way for cows and to to kill off the indigenous population to starve them out, basically. Such a ludicrous and sinister story, but it's true. So yeah, thought of the buffalo parallel. That's a great. That's you know that lends credibility to this. Venice. Yeah, it's it's not unfathomable by a long shot, right? Um, so so it, what about now though? So you, you I know that you mentioned slash and burn agriculture. So does that present a threat to Maya nut today? Uh, you said that there's monocropping for corn and uh, just eliminating these trees to create pasture. And I feel like, I mean, this is the sort of um, perennial story, right? Is that farmers are in- intentionally or unintentionally shooting themselves in the foot um, because the reality is, is that the food that comes from the Mayana tree is actually incredibly nutritious for livestock and for people. And it's this nourishing sort of this giver of life. And yet, what are we doing to it now? Yeah, it's unfortunate that modern agriculture is is not sustainable. And yeah, the Maya forests have been greatly reduced. And interestingly, the Maya tree thrives the most in what's known as tropical dry forest. Not even in, I mean, it's in tropical humid forests, but in tropical mm. dry forests, you would find almost pure stands of Maya. And like one acre of Maya trees could feed an entire community for the year. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, those, we we do trainings in, sure. in communities throughout the tree's range and in its former range. And some of the places we go, the people tell me these heartbreaking stories about growing up, eating, eating the Maya, like running home from school and stopping in the forest and gathering a big bucket of Maya and taking it home and asking your mom to cook it for you. And just eating that as your after school snack and everybody ate it or they traded with it. And it was so delicious and everybody was so healthy and they're just they're just really bummed that they did not protect those forests because by the time we show up to a lot of communities, their forests are really wow. decimated by need. Mostly it's need. You've got to, you've got to feed yourself and your family. It's just a fact of life. It, you said it's mostly for meat. Need, 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 need. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and so, but what's interesting is that, there's evidence, right, that this was a super nourishing food for their ancestors. I mean, you just told that story, and then we know that this has been around for a long time. But now there's almost, there's almost like a, is there a stigma attached to it, would you say, in certain communities? Yeah, that's a great word for it. There's, um, I'd say almost everywhere, people don't want to eat it because it's got a lot of stigma. It was, it's a free food. It's a food that even if you don't own land, you can still get it. It's considered a, a food for the landless poor. Huh. And no one wants to be considered poor. And I know in, El- in um, 
Nicaragua where we work, the families say, ooh, they're eating Maya nut. They must really be bumming. Somebody lost their job or, or you know, ooh, their husband's not bringing home the bacon like he should. So it's it's really frowned upon. A lot of communities where we work also, especially in El Salvador and northern Guatemala, have suffered from recent, not recent, in the 80s, there was a lot of yeah. uh, civil war. And people fled and people had to scrounge for food under cover of darkness. They couldn't cook because if you built a fire, then the troop, the soldiers would find you and kill you. So the grandmas would go out because they were the most expendable family member. Huh. They would go out at night and they would harvest Maya and they would bring it home and everybody would eat it raw. It's really not that good raw. So it's just got, in a lot of places, it's got a negative, a lot of negative memories associated with it. But then really at, the same time, at the same time, I've seen, I mean, you've got a, a really fun um, library of videos on YouTube. If anybody wants to check them out, what's your YouTube handle? My Nut Institute? Yeah, or the Equilibrium Fund, which was our former name. So I think we have two YouTube channels. Okay. You've got great little interviews um, from all over the Americas. And so I'm even remembering one with... I think a guy from Jamaica, right? So what so what are what are some what's some of the folklore associated with Maya Nut? Oh man, that guy in Jamaica is so funny. Yeah. Eddie um used it well he he fed it to his donkey. Uh-huh. And uh the donkey went crazy to get to the girl donkeys. <laughs> so he decided that must have some sort of Viagra properties. So you, you kind of got to see him talking about it. He said it. Yeah, he was pumped on it. A very powerful man. Right. Yeah, no, he, he's uh, he's all about my nut for sure. And part of that is because the tree produces such huge amounts of seed. It's oh, yeah. A virile tree. In in like a folklore. It, it would, I could see where that, that tree where that would come from some sure. of the productivity and virility would, would make a man think that it would lend some of that to him. So, so when the tree's producing, it, is it a seasonal thing? Is it like just during a, a certain season or is it year round that it's just dropping seeds to the forest floor? And is it, is it's just raining seeds? What's, what's the experience of harvesting my actually like? So some places they'll have four harvests a year. That's I only know of one forest like that. It's in Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. Um, but most places have just one or two harvests a year. And the tree, tree is one of the biggest trees in the rainforest. I call it the bull elk of the forest. All right. It grows up. It's a, called a canopy emergent. Uh-huh. So it grows up and over the other trees. And one tree can produce... 800 pounds of seed all at once. So it'll fall in a four to six weeks week period. And it'll be like a foot thick on the floor of the forest. Oh, a foot thick. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You're walking on a carpet of food basically. Gosh. And so then all the wild animals must just, I mean, that's what you, where this started, right? You were using it to feed animals in the rescue center and the wild animals must just love it. 
Yeah, and that's an actually, that's a reproductive strategy where the tree tries to saturate its predator base, satiate, saturate, so that no matter how much they're gorging, and you'll see all the animals together eating, and bats also like it, and a lot of arboreal mammals like uh, honey bears, Uh kinkajous, spider monkeys, white-based monkeys, hollow monkeys. Um. Yeah. So yeah, it's really important for the forest creatures. And it goes without saying that this tree is obviously and crucial for carbon sequestration. I mean, when you think, I, I'm sure you saw the news in recent, in like last year, the fires and the rainforests in South America. So how do, how do you interpret that when you think about Maya nut and it's, it's, you know, degree of importance for climate change and carbon sequestration. Yeah. Maya, just because partly by virtue of its size. Yeah. Sequesters about a ton of carbon per tree. Mm, okay. But it, it also has this quite amazing quality and I should have read about it before I started to try to talk about it. Cause it's a uh, geophysics. Sure. Geochemistry where it moves carbon from the organic phase to the mineral phase by virtue of the carbon oxalate cycle, which it uses, uh, there's a special bacteria that's associated with certain soil pHs. So the Maya takes carbon from the atmosphere and in its leaves and stems, produces um, calcium carbonate and it secretes that through its roots in the form of rocks, mineral, like geological. Yeah. And that just becomes a part of the soil. Yeah. So whereas in conventional carbon forest, carbon projects where you're trying to plant trees, to sequester carbon in the bodies of the trees, Sure. Trunks and the, and the roots. That carbon is sequestered for like maybe a 30 to 50, 100 year cycle. Uh-huh. Whereas the Maya tree, and there's a few other species that do it. Sure. But the Maya is the one I'm talking about now. It, it's, it produces, yeah, this calcium carbonate that'll then be out of the carbon cycle for a million years. And that's because of this symbiosis with a bacterium, it sounds like. Yeah. That's fascinating. It reminds me of this. Oh, good. There's articles about that on the internet because I don't know if I thoroughly explained it. Like a chemist might think. No, I mean, I think you, I think you did the trick just fine. The idea being that you get it carbon out of the atmosphere and into the ground. Yeah. Um, I mean, in a nutshell, there's a really cool film for any of our listeners that are interested called kiss the ground narrated by Woody Harrelson. I think I just mentioned it to you the other day, Erica, and it's all about how um, we often think about trees as important carbon sequesters, and of, of course they are, but actually a, just a ridiculous amount of carbon is wrapped up in our, our soil. And so as soil erosion um, basically in, intensifies as a problem globally, we're also leaching carbon into the atmosphere. And so anything we can do to get the carbon back into the soil is crucial. And to just know that that is a... Uh, unique if not exclusively unique still relatively unique property of maya is pretty cool yeah it's really phenomenal yeah 
So, okay. So this is, I mean, the, the, the picture is kind of coming together, right? You've got this amazingly potent, um, expansive tree growing all across South America um, that is an emergent canopy, provides nutrition to the animals in the forest uh, as a resource to human communities live locally for thousands of years, presumably since ancient times. And now in modern times, you see that it's socially stigmatized um, in, in the uh, human communities and it's basically being sacrificed in slash and burn agriculture to grow corn, to graze livestock. And you're seeing the, the departure of this tree um, from people's diets, um, from the local environments. What, I mean, that's, it's sad, right? It's sad when you think about this. I mean, anytime you hear about extinction, the fact that we're in the middle of the sixth mass extinction, everything that's happening globally, um, I, I can feel the, the sorrow of something like that. And I, I know you did too. And that is what spurred you to start the Mayanut Institute. So can you tell our listeners a bit more about that, about what the Mayanut Institute's mission is, if you could kind of distill it down for us and then talk a little bit about what you've endeavored to do in forming the Mayanut Institute? Yeah, the Mayanut Institute was formed um, to basically create to motivate communities to conserve the Maya tree by educating them, by rescuing the lost indigenous knowledge about the seed for food and the yeah. tree for fodder. And then it kind of morphed into, we, we were training, we do these trainings in communities that have access to trees. Mm-hmm the women how to harvest and process it for food and the original vision was that they would then have this amazing nutritious free delicious food source and that they could feed their families better and um that would free up some family income for other things and you know just create healthier communities that were also living in harmony with the rainforest but the women didn't really want to eat it the families didn't really want to eat it. So, so that, but they wanted to produce it because they thought it was cool and it was something they were able to do. Again, they didn't want to eat it because of the, the social stigma. So then they started because... calling me and saying, are you going to buy this stuff you taught us how to make? Huh. And I was like, well, no, you guys are supposed to eat it. Yum, you know, mm. <laughs> eat it up. And they just right. wouldn't do it. They just were embarrassed to eat it. They, they yeah. were producing way more than they could actually eat. So then we started to do this program called Healthy Kids, Healthy Forest, where we incorporated the Maya into school lunch programs in those communities. And then the um, the the communities would receive this really delicious, nutritious school lunch in exchange for they would plant, they would agree to plant 2,000 trees each community. But that was kind of an expensive program, and we were having a really hard time funding that. So 
I started a business called Maya Superfoods, and I started um, trying. I started a yeah. I started marketing it online. So we mm-hmm. have a a store called Maya Superfoods. www.mayasuperfoods.com, and uh, we sell a lot of our a lot of Maya online. So I've been able to buy quite a bit of product from some of the producers. And that motivates them. I don't know what's going on. Are we losing the internet here? No, you're coming through clearly for me. It's great. Oh, I muted you. <laughs> Hi. Can you hear me now? Yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. So it's interesting. The story sort of landed in a different place than um, what you guys were planning originally, right? The The original vision was to really focus on um, providing a, a nutritious source of sustenance for communities, but the stigma sort of um, interfered with that, and you ended up going more this um, route of basically buying from them in order to stimulate the that the economy there or that part of the economy, so that they can um, just keep keep on growing the trees, keep on um, harvesting from the trees. Not what you yeah, were expecting. And the skill. Yeah, it was lost indigenous knowledge. So I've met yeah. I've met thousands and thousands of women, rural women, some of them like really remotely living, really remote, depending on the forest for everything. And only one percent of those ladies even remembered that you could eat it. It was pretty minimal the amount of of the percentage of people that still remember that that's the food much less had any clue about how to process it because it's it's a fresh seed that's kind of potatoy you harvest it off the ground it's really susceptible to rot and mold so uh-huh. we have thousands of communities and women's cooperatives that are now trained and very skilled at this very delicate art of producing this beautiful seed that's dried and ready for either export or it can be stored. It's a really great famine food because it can be stored for a really long time and it doesn't lose any of its nutritional qualities. So even though they're not eating it now, that doesn't mean that things can't change or that their kids, second generation might, might take hold of it and realize how good it makes you feel and how healthy it is and how free it is. (laughs) Yeah. It's super delicious. Super delicious. I mean, it tastes just like coffee. It's outrageous. Yeah. So, so where did you learn it though? Where did you basically uncover the, the, the process and what, can you walk us through what that process actually is from the, the point of harvest and sort of all of the steps that follow from there in order to actually have um, Maya nut in a form that you can ingest and what are the different ways that it's ingested? Yeah. So I was, um, I went to grad school after learning, after eating that soup and getting that fax. Yeah. Went to grad school and then I went to, with my diploma in hand, I was ready to go. So I had a very dear friend um, in Guatemala working for the United Nations Development Program Mm -hmm. in rural communities in Southern Guatemala. And he said, oh, I have a group of ladies. They have a couple of trees on their property. Maybe they would work with you. And I said, okay. 
Heck yeah. So I went down there and I hiked up to this community and the ladies were amazingly welcoming and loving and friendly and creative. They were all illiterate, Hmm. but that doesn't matter. Um, we, it wasn't, it was a former coffee plantation that had been given as part of this land distribution program Hmm. after the war in Guatemala. So these ladies were working really hard with their families and the rest of the community to resuscitate this farm. And they had, I think, six Maya trees there. And it was in the middle of the harvest. And so we just, none of us knew what to do, but we went out and we gathered the seeds. And we looked at it for a while and we tasted it. It's disgusting raw. And then they said, well, let's try to dry it. So we unearthed this old beast of a coffee dryer, (laughs) dusted it all off, and we got some kerosene to get it running. It was a gas dryer. And we put the seed on there and we fired the thing up. It was like chitty, chitty, bang, bang. (laughs) But it dried the seed beautifully. And then um, my new friend, Odilia Cruz, Uh genius. I call her the illiterate Mensa. She came up with the idea to roast it on a comal. It's a big clay uh, roasting thing that they make tortillas on. So she roasted it there, and then we put it in one of those hand corn grinders. Yeah. And, uh, man, I wish I had a video of that day because our minds were all so completely blown with this this powder that was coming out of that mill because it smelled absolutely incredible. It smelled like a cappuccino dipped in chocolate, just fresh with kind of a, yeah, nutty smell and then we you know somebody else had the idea of mixing it with milk and oh let's add sugar and oh let's try this and let's make pancakes <laughs> so it was just a bunch of women who are used to cooking with nothing sure so we really we came up with this incredible array of recipes wow so we also took that seed instead of drying it you can take that fresh seed and you can boil it for like mm-hmm three hours kind of like you would boil corn only longer you add a little bit of ash wood ash and okay. that has some alchemy in the seed to make it cook better and faster okay. and then we um first we took those seeds that were boiled and we squirted fresh lime and a little bit of chilies oh. and we ate those like an appetizer all right and then we ground some of them up um Metate. Do you know what a metate is? That's what you would grind corn with if you didn't have any other way. Okay. It's like a, um, a corn grinder. It's a, it's made of stone. And they were actually sure, sure. using a Colombian one that they had found because they were actually living on an old archaeological site. So we ground up the seeds and we made tamales. Yeah. Wow. And then we made some soup. We made some meatballs with it. Instead of meat, we used the Maya um, like puree. Okay. So it's really a versatile food, especially if you're with a bunch of really creative ladies that were, you know, we were all good eaters. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's Sounds like a fun out of a movie. Make- I'm like, I'm visualizing it and getting hungry just thinking about each, uh, each successive discovery. Yeah. And even still, so we're still doing workshops and my, um, 
my coordinator, program coordinator in Guatemala just sent me a picture of her cream of Maya soup. Oh, yeah? Which has never been made on earth before. <laughs> beautiful pale green soup, cream soup. It must have been just divine. Oh, my gosh. It has a really delicious flavor when it's fresh. It tastes like buttered mashed potatoes. Well, but it's, it's, you're not able to get it really to the United States in fresh form easily, right? No, but there are some trees in Florida, and there are some okay. grown in California. So you can, you can go to the – maybe I shouldn't tell people, but there is a way. Call me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're in Northern California, so maybe, maybe we'll end up – some growing in Southern California. It's a great species for there. It's yeah, really I guess we have to be mindful of introducing invasive species here is the, always the concern, right? But I don't, you got to do it in a, if you do it, it's got to be in a mindful way. Yeah, you know, we had a big concern about that for a long really? time. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't facilitate sending seed around, like particular Hawaii is an interesting case because they really want to grow it there because yeah. they're a very food insecure island. Okay. Um, and it turns out that it's not really becoming a problem because you're either harvesting the branches for fodder, which makes them not produce seeds, or you're producing seed and you're harvesting almost all the seed. Got so it. It is dispersed by bats, but I'm not sure what the bat situation is is in Hawaii. And after conferring with a lot of ecologists in Hawaii, they we all decided that it was okay. It gave and the it's green also, light. Yeah, it's also in Kenya, Uganda, the Canary Islands. It's it's been brought to quite a few places where it's Europe not- too. Has it made it over overseas there? Um, I'm not thinking of anywhere. Oh yeah, they've planted it in um, Nepal. Nepal. Wow. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, Amazing. So probably, but I, I don't know everything about it. There's things that happen that I don't know about. Right. It just sort of runs away from you. Doesn't it? That's our philosophy is to have it, have it be, you know, everyone take, take possession of it, not possession. I know what you mean. Take pride in it and stewardship with it and yeah especially it. working with these rural yeah. men who don't have a lot of opportunities to shine yeah. sure and they, really, they really they really love being able to you know invent something like that soup or that's outrageously cool and then their wisdom really comes through in this like super tangible thing that that then the whole world can get to know about and experience i mean I think that's what the world needs more. Uh, if I could just speak more generally, um, that uh, that is what the world needs. There's so many things we're looking for tec- technical solutions uh, to climate change or to soil erosion. And all of these uh, indigenous communities have been aware of this decline for forever <laughs> since they've been around and they've warned against it. And we're out like in the labs trying to figure out how we're going to solve the problem. 
which I guess has its its merits in some ways, but it seems like it's often uh, at the at the disregard of just the wisdom that already exists in these communities of how to live in balance with the land and live in union with with their communities. It's it's I mean anything that can be done to promote that is really what, more of what the world needs. Yeah, and I, I know that that's how you feel as well. And I know that a big part of this project for you, apart from uh, promoting Maya and sort of sustaining Maya, has been promoting woman empowerment also. You were speaking earlier in your narrative of discovery. It was with these three, uh, these, these women that were coming up and creating all of these ideas from scratch about how to do this with the pan and this and dry it out and all that. And and then in, in the development of the Minot Institute, you're really focused on working with the women in these communities. So can you, can you share with our listeners, you've told me some stories, so I'm kind of finding myself giggling a little bit, but what are some stories you can share about sort of how this has played out in, in the pra- on the practical side of things? Um, yeah, I've had a huge commitment to focusing on women since this incident happened in Guatemala. It was the same year that I was working at that animal rescue place and I learned about the Maya tree and then I thought, well, we should do a reforestation project because this tree is so cool. And I was young and naive and didn't know much and my Spanish wasn't that good, but I found a community and I was going to work with the school and help them do a school a school forest, school reforestation project. Okay. With the school director, and um, we sent out letters to the parents to come to this meeting at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday or whatever. And so I'm all excited with my little bag of seeds and some reforestation bags and who's going to come to the meeting. And I'm sitting there with the school director. He was a man. And all these ladies come trucking up the trail to go to this meeting. And I was so excited. And they all come. There's probably 30 women that showed up. And it's a big deal for them to go to a meeting. It means it's very important because they have a lot to do at home. They're not sure, yeah. with their sure. feet up. So, so they came to the meeting and the director stands up and he says, all right, ladies, it's too bad that your husbands couldn't come. Because you guys don't have any voice or any votes in anything. So run along home and we'll try to set up another meeting (laughs) another day when your husbands can come. Whoa. Yeah. And they told me later that my face was as red as a tomato because I had never, ever expected or experienced anything even remotely like that. So, um, so yeah, I interjected and we I said I'll work with you guys. We don't need this guy. He can he can piss off. Yeah. So we did a reforestation project there with just me and those ladies and I just was made so brutally aware of the marginalization of women in those communities. And I was I vowed then. I wasn't really aware of it at the moment, but I definitely have dedicated my life to creating safe and dignified opportunities for women for work and education 
and participation and contribution. It's really important to me. And so what is the a day in the life of a woman in one of the communities that you work in before you show up there, one of your team members shows up there to educate around Maya. I, I don't, I know we're kind of generalizing and everybody's obviously Well, they different. have to get permission for their, from their husbands to even go to a training. Really? Yeah. And some women, that's one of the reasons we just have all women there because it's less, um, scary for a man to let his wife go to a training where there's it's all women because i think the men all the other wives are doing it too kind of thing well and there's not some man that's gonna try to hook up with your wife ah got it i don't know i have no idea what they're thinking sure sure. it's definitely not all of them but it's kind of the culture is that the women are kept at home Sure. Doing the work at home and they don't get any big ideas to go be making something of themselves out there in the world or God forbid having their own money and making their own choices. Yeah. Wow. So, and the rank of the woman is very low. It's really sad. So if the family gets sick, so we work in a lot of areas where they have dengue fever. Okay. If the family's sick and the doctor comes, the order of treatment is the oldest son, the middle son, the youngest son, the father, then doctor can go. Or if they are flush and have a lot of money, then the wife will get treated and then the daughters. And the daughters won't be sent to school. So it's just not fair. (laughs) And I don't like it at all. So I'm doing my part. And we've had so many problems with focusing on women we've been called sexist and exclusive and you know other organizations that are run by men have really worked hard to try to make us fail or try to hijack funding um they were calling us they were telling (laughs) somebody was telling the other one of the other organizations, because there's a lot of nonprofits, everybody's working in conservation and reforestation and yeah. all that, especially in these famous forests like the Maya Biosphere Reserve. Sure, sure. Or the Sierra de la Candonia in Mexico. These are these are famous forests. They're very important right. for conservation. And there's a lot of conservation groups fighting for funding. Mm-hmm. And they were telling the other organizations and people that I was running a prostitution ring and that these trainings were actually me teaching the women how to be prostitutes. <laughs> ah, got it. They're not very original, are they? I'm sure uh, that one's never been tried before. It was so funny, but you know, it was really hurtful for the women. It was actually, I thought it was funny, but for them it was really hurtful. Wow. So, it's just, just silliness and stuff that we can't even imagine that really happens is still happening. Yeah. I mean, wow. So it's, it's, it seems like it, it feels so out of scope for us because it, like in American politics, obviously gender equality is a persistent issue or equality of opportunity and all these things. And it's not, it's obviously not gone away. Um, the need for this focus 
and yet like the 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 scope is totally shifted when you start talking about some of these communities it's like it's it's like a trip back in time in many ways um where yeah. you have this sort of intensely patriarchal culture in place and it kind of makes you wonder <laughs> that it doesn't seem like it's a coincidence that that's linked to the disregard for these trees and the vitality that they bring to the forest and to people and to the animals. Yeah. It, those, those philosophies seem very linked to me. Yeah. You're right. And so it, you know, it also reminds me of like, think about like black lives matter, right? That's a big um, movement. It's been a big movement for years, but especially it's in the forefront right now. And then one of the, the response to that is, well, all lives matter, right? It's yeah. like, yeah, but black, true, but Black Lives Matter is speaking to a specific uh, problem that's been identified in the culture. It, it would be like if, if you say happy birthday to somebody and then it's like, yeah, but what about to everybody else's birthday that happened today? And it's like, yeah, okay, that's true, but I'm, it's a specific moment, right? And so you're talking about this, this, um, culture that you're seeing where toxic masculinity is just dominating and you're saying, well, I want to build my work and my initiative around offsetting that. Right. And so then of course there's going to be a focus on empowering women that will on the surface be to the exclusion of men being as involved directly. But the point is, is you're trying to create something that can really, really address um, the imbalance that exists. Yeah. Yeah. And the women are so grateful and they're like, I've never been invited to a training ever. And I never went to school ever. So they, it's just so much human potential that we're missing out on. Yeah. By yeah. Not letting them contribute their wisdom and their point of view. Cause women's especially rural rural and indigenous women see the world so differently and so, so differently. And beautiful and it's so nurturing. How are we going to come up with, like, if we limit ourselves, we take away or disempower half of the population, right? And you expect you're going to be yeah. as able to solve problems. There's no way you're not going to be, you're not going to have access to that kind of cognitive capital that you would have if you were able to, you know, maintain a, a world where everybody's feeling that like kind of empowerment. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm sure you see when you work with these women that their their attitude like toward life changes because what you're talking about is creating a dynamic where they're more empowered, more confident and control of the strings, right? I I remember um you used to say or you told me that you make sure that the money went into the hands of the women because that was it was important how it then got spent, right? It would be different if it would go into their hands versus other hands, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, women always are buying food and medicine and paying. That's what they care about. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's um it's interesting. I get it. I mean, I was just watching a documentary the other day that I I can uh, also recommend along with uh this is a public service announcement for all of our listeners to check out a film called Kiss the Ground. Um and I think the other one, David Attenborough, just came out. Uh, it's called The Life on Our Planet. Oh, I love him. 
Yeah, he's amazing. And so the whole film, it, it spans his life and it tells the story of how, how um, he became who he is and all of his decades of exploration and his um, work in conservation and all of this. But near the end of the film, it, it, he talks about, I mean, it takes you on this kind of roller coaster ride of emotion as you, as he kind of brings you face to face with the starkness of the climate and environmental an environmental crisis. But after that, he does speak to solutions. And what I thought was really fascinating was the, the order of solutions that he shared. So normally I think the, the mind kind of goes to green energy, right? That's like the big calling card, especially here in the US and politically, they talk about the, the Green New Deal, which is all great, like no doubt about it, but everything's framed around kind of more economic opportunity and development, but in the right um, economic sector and the sector of renewable, sustainable energy, solar panels, wind energy, all of this and all the jobs that that'll create. He, he gets there eventually, but the first thing that he talks about, the, the primary point um, that he brings to the table, first and foremost, is um, population, right? The, just the idea that you have a, a finite planet, your, your finite amount of natural resources that you can utilize at any given time. And if, if you can't do something, if you can't do the same activity basically forever, then by definition, it's not sustainable. And if you have this expanding population with expanding needs and expanding uh, consumption of resources, right, you're not going to be able to, it's just going to make the weight, the burden of, of um, climate change all the more difficult to, to bear. And what he says that's key is that investing in communities and raising the standard of education is crucial, especially among women. Because by educating and by building confidence and by building a sense of self-autonomy and direction um, in these, these up-and-coming and developing um, parts of the world, they're, they're more able to have control over their birth planning. And so they don't need – they can basically offset the threat of overpopulation, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it's very clear to me that what you're talking about with the, the forest is obviously carbon sequestration, deforestation. All of this is crucial in the battle against climate change. But so too is education of, um, of women and unearthing all of this indigenous wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really interesting. So what's your plan now, Erica? What do you see, you know, what would you like to see happen for Maya um, in the next, let's say, one to two years? What is your vision for the Institute and um, sort of like best case scenario as you see this play out? Well, we're trying to create a market. We're trying to inform consumers about its health benefits. It's really high in prebiotic fiber. Mm -hmm. So it can um, really help heal gut any sort of gut issue and it can also boost your immunity because a lot of your immunity is from your gut yep and also it's a very calming food um and it, it turns out that's also a gut effect from this prebiotic fiber it turns out most of your serotonin and dopamine are produced in the gut all right 
It's, so it's basically you can drink it right before bed, right? On on my coffee where it has like a stimulating kind of effect because the caffeine, my night you can drink before bed and it's totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. So we 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 import the seed and we roast and mill it and we produce powder, which you can use to make like an instant coffee and um also a coffee substitute called Noes Cafe. Sure. There's also other brands of it on the market today sure. like you can find them on amazon uh yeah so i would like consumers to know what it is and how good it is for them and how much that consuming it can help with this positive feedback loop of yeah. creating more demand and you it's called market driven conservation so the more market there is the more conservation of the existing forests happens and the more reforestation so that these communities can have more sources of income or have this as a source of income so yeah for the future i'd love to have it be you know as popular as chocolate for example and chocolate <laughs> it tastes very chocolatey sure like chocolate and brownies um, chocolate bars, hot cocoa, fudge, things like that. And actually, chocolate is very vulnerable to climate change. They're saying oh. there's going to be some serious issues with chocolate supplies in the coming years. So I'm hoping that Maya can help fill that niche. Also, coffee. Sure. I love coffee. I drink coffee. I drink Maya Noes Cafe. We're going we're gonna to censor that from the radio show. Don't worry. Really? Okay. But coffee is actually coffee is a socioeconomically devastating crop because ah. it relies really heavily on child labor. Sure. It's a really unfairly paid crop. It's it's a pretty mean food. Gotcha. Sort of like blood diamonds. So, um, if you could drink Maya instead of coffee, you'd be really doing a huge benefit for communities and for children, especially. Right. Okay. Got it. And, and do you see that sort of market, dri market driven conservation approach also um, driving the education of Maya and the community and the public, people knowing more about it? Um, I'm not sure I understand the question. Yeah. Just that as people be basically, um, explore as as they consume more maya and they buy more maya they'll get to learn more about it and they'll become more familiar with it and um, its story will make its way across the world and that's what we hope for well yeah and then it would drive more agronomic research yep because this is a tree that's never had not never because i know indigenous communities pre-columbian communities selected and bred it erica I'm sorry, Erica. We we've actually got to go. We're gonna we're gonna finish now. We'll um, oh, okay. have another show later. Thank you, Erica. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Bye. -bye. <laughs>